Welcome to uh, Increasing the Representation of Diverse Populations of Digital Collections. Um, we are all from the Smithsonian Institution and we are representing different projects and initiatives that are going on across the Smithsonian um, in this regard. But of course it does not do justice to the many different activities that are going on across the Smithsonian um, nor of course beyond the Smithsonian um, in this realm. And hopefully we'll build upon many other discussions that I know have already been held today around collections, collections data, digitized collections, and different initiatives that um, better connect users. Is this on? Oh, oh okay. I, I'm sure I, I'll, I'll just have my voice be magnified all of a sudden and it'll be very jarring. But, um, uh, and, and in that, um, I think we all just want to acknowledge the fact that there's some irony here in the title, and yet all of us are from the same institution and bear a striking resemblance, at least racially. And so, you know, we should acknowledge the fact that um, there are obviously many layers to this. And so we can engage in the hard work of diversifying collections online. But of course, the online space is not the only space where this occurs, and they have very real connections to, you know, our actual. Um, institutions, our hiring practices, and how we engage in all work around museums on a daily basis. So starting the panel with that acknowledgement and um, also just inviting you to, you know, offer any critiques you have on that front as well as anything we discuss today. Um, I'm going to let each uh, person introduce themselves. Uh, so uh, take it away, Effie. With a mic there. I, I have, oh, yeah? Yes. Okay. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm, they all Okay. Great. I will turn that off. Mute. Yes. Oh, and Bob needs this for later. Okay. All right, everyone. Let's arrive. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be talking about the Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative, and um, as things happen in our world as a national institution is there is a lobbying group that decides that we need a new museum of X. And um, one of those groups approached Congress to execute a study on whether or not this museum should exist and whether or not it should be part of the Smithsonian. And we receive a $2 million appropriation a year um, for this as we investigate how we may or may not do this, frankly. Um, it takes many um, years and, and lots of layers of legislation for this to actually get enacted. Our African American History and Culture Museum took over 100 years to actually uh, go from the first group of people who advocated for that to, to open to um, 2008, nine. When did it, oh my gosh. I'm sorry, I, the last year of President Obama's term, we wanted to open before he left office, so. That's when it opened. So all that to say, um, one of the challenges that we have, and I hinted at this last night if you were at Ignite, is we do an inadequate job of showing people in our collections. So I used to be at an archive. I was at the Smithsonian Archives. And so there are all these figures just beneath the layer of, um, of the finding aids. And this didn't shed any light whatsoever on their contributions. So in a lot of ways, this is essentially what is motivating us on the digital side of this work. And this project was launched under the Smithsonian strategic goal of reaching 1 billion people a year with the digital first strategy. So no pressure, right? Um, but that's like part of the mandate. Um, and whether or not we can do that 
is still to be proven. Um, so I'm going to be very transparent about trying to do this with very few resources, which is kind of ironic. Um, they're mostly women leading this project. We're all doing this in addition to our other duties. So um, there's, there's discussions going on. Um, so uh, this is very hard for me to see. So we spent the first year um, trying to get some things started. We have leads of education, leads of digital, leads of curatorial, leads of marketing and communications. And one of our um, goals that go across everything that we're doing is to create, uh, to make sure that the role of women in history is well known, accurate, acknowledged, and empowering for citizens. We have, in addition to the appropriation, we've also been fundraising for the initiative um, because we realize we have a lot in, in our 19 museums and nine research centers already that talk about women. We just need to make that more explicit. So um, we've brought on uh, four of the nine curators that we've decided to bring on for um, four-year positions. These are across all different disciplines. We um, have launched internal pool funds um, to help the different museums and research centers do some of the things they would like to do with this. Uh, and we have two major exhibits coming out. So the Votes for Women Portrait of Persistence focusing on the diverse history of American women's suffrage is open and that is uh, that anniversary is in August uh, 2020 for those of you who don't live in the US. And that we like to highlight is not uh, women's suffrage for everyone, right? So Native American women were left out of this picture. Uh, African American women, immigrants, the struggle is going on today. So it's really important that we understand that this has been a multi-layer history that we're building on right now. Um, and finally, we just released a publication, sort of a hundred objects highlight with um, stories of women that uh, came out last week called Smithsonian American Women. So for digital, we're, um, uh, I'm doing pretty good fundraising, which is pretty exciting. So I have a uh, Wikipedian in residence for gender equity on staff. I have a digital audience and content coordinator um, coming on this month, and I'll be hiring a data scientist in a couple of months. So if you're interested, please, please stay tuned. Um, but for, um, so it's a multidisciplinary approach with storytelling, looking at multiple digital tracks, but I'm going to focus on collections as data because we are a good uh, test case, I'd say, for trying to do this across all of us, right? We have me science museums, we have American history museums, we have art museums, um, we have every flavor in a lot of ways of US museum in our complex. So if we can develop processes that do this in our own environment, then I think we can also um, get other people on board with this as we develop outwards. So I'm going to go through quickly each one of these, because you may have heard it last night. But um, we have one of the four um, curators on staff right now is a digital curator who's investigating the history of American women in science. She's using our own scientists as a, as a test case. And instead of creating exhibits and publications, she's creating structured data and online resources. So that one name in a finding aid will now have lots of 
statements about what she did and what she contributed. And it will also um, be digital secondary sources for lots of other people to use and connect to. Um, <laughs> this whole project started with a conversation with um, Dr. Vicki Funk, who's a botanist uh, at Natural History Museum. Dr. Funk, when we started talking um, about bringing on this curator or applying for the pool fund, um, noted that she gained credibility with her young niece who found her Wikipedia page, which was created at one of our past edit-a-thons years ago. She got a call from her niece and said, you know, Aunt Vicki, you're on Wikipedia. <laughs> and she didn't really understand what she studied that much, but to me, that was a moment of just knowing the importance of being acknowledged and being present in a, a previously absent space. Um, this list is named in honor of her. She just passed away. Um, she reached out to people across our organization and asked for the first and second females in every discipline from um, astronomy all the way to zoology. And now the digital curator that we brought on board has grown that list to over 400 names. We are going to mass export that to any open platform we can. That I think is an early success. I'm so proud of that work because it involved people and now we're gonna let the machines take off with that. Um, data science, so I am I am open to this completely failing because we n read about the inherent problems with um, machine learning. And you know our collections reflect a lot of those biases because our culture was biased at the time that these things were collected. So um, really what I'm looking to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna speak on behalf of one of our two data scientists who work across our entire organization. Her name is Rebecca Dickow. Um, and she's helped form this concept of a digital humanities data scientist. Um, but I think the real value will be analyzing what we have because there's no way to look across the whole of our digital resources and say what they're saying. Um, so just to go you know, back a little bit, uh, we had a data scientist fellow this summer um, and uh, Tiana Curry, and she was brought on through a nonprofit that tries to get more diverse um, people in the field of data science. So this was a really great um, partnership for us. So um, this particular case study, there are about 220 plants that were collected by one of our secretaries, Charles um, D. Walcott. And his wife, uh, Mary V. Walcott, um, collected alongside him. She was noted for being an illustrator. Well. When uh, Tiana started digging into the stories, because there wasn't much online um, appropriated to uh, Mary Walcott, uh, she found some specimen that were attributed to Charles D. Walcott after he died. How is that possible? Guess what, his wife was doing the collecting, but they still were saying Charles Walcott did it because she was never an official employee. There's a law in the US during World War II that a man and a woman could not hold a federal position at the same time. So guess who was in voluntary capacity and not acknowledged for their work? Um, so another area, this is, this is topic modeling. So we're, gonna, we're looking at the collections. 
there are 100,000 of our 14 million records explicitly tagged as related to women right now. Don't get, don't even, you know, we can't even go beyond that in terms of diversity. So it's, we're in really worse shape than Wikipedia right now. Um, but these topics are, ha are the topics that are associated with women in our collections. And we can put that across time and start to see what our collections are saying. So we'll let you know how this goes once we have a full-time staff member there. Um, finally, crowdsourcing. Um, this is kind of a no-brainer to me. We're super lucky in that Wikimedia DC is a really active chapter near us, and you probably have seen Andrew Lee around, and we've been working with him for a while now. But um, we also have a transcription platform that um, a lot of the volunteers there suddenly notice women deep in the collections, and they carry that knowledge make the connections with other um, organizations to share what they find, and they write Wikipedia articles. So we're going to be looking at diversifying the tasks to, uh, that these volunteers are engaged in, and also being able to capture, like, oh, I found someone. How do we bring that back um, into our collections? So um, this is an example. Siobhan Leach Leachman, which I'm sure a lot of uh, people have seen her on Twitter, but um, this is when she noticed in this record that it was Mr. and Mrs. J.N. Rose who were doing the collecting. And uh, J.N. Rose was much more name, uh, known than his wife, uh, Lou Beatrice Sims. So our Wikipedia residence for gender representation is um, harnessing the scholarship of the four incoming curators, as well as inventorying what we have now. We've hosted three edit-a-thons. Um, my notes are totally not showing. This is a bummer. Um, but just to give one example, um, darn. So right now we're working across the Smithsonian, but we have affiliates in every state uh, across the US. So we're developing micro crowdsourcing tasks um, that um, we're going to be reaching out. And we invite you to, because we'll do this with the because of her story hashtag. But give us five names in your collections. Give us your resources, and we'll include you virtually in these edit-a-thons as we go across different topics. So we're going to actually be partnering with some of our affiliates in different states around specific topic topics. Um, like for the um, anniversary of Charlottesville, we're going to look at African-American history and partner our African-American History and Culture Museum with um, cultural organizations in, in Charlotte. So um, one image portrait gallery contributed high-res image of Sojourner Truth has been viewed over 60,000 times in her article since April. Um, this totally overshadows what has, how much she's been viewed on the National Portrait Gallery's website. So, you know, I feel like, to quote Taylor Swift, <laughs> They're so sick of running as fast as they can without getting the acknowledgement and wondering if they would get that acknowledgement if they were a man, okay? So you got to join me on this. I'm going to be asking you guys to show up with women onto your collections, and that's it. <laughs> okay. That was Effie Capsalis. <laughs> What's your title? No, no, it's fine. Okay, that's good. <laughs> you she told needs me to no do title. that. I, I didn't, didn't tell you to do that. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. All right.
Okay, so how do we want to do this? You want to use that mic and I'll use this mic? Uh, yeah, okay. We, ha we are um, doing a joint presentation, which, you know, is always a, a little bit dicey. Um, so um, I'm Sherry Berger. I am the head of digital programs at the National Museum of American History. And this is Darren. What is your title, Darren? Uh, my title is Senior Digital Strategist. Is this not? Oh, turn oh, it on. Turn I it muted on. it. Hello. Yeah. Uh, I'm the senior digital strategist at the Smithsonian Center for Learning and Digital Access. And so what we're going to talk about today is a project that we are quite literally smack dab in the middle of. Um, the project, the first phase of the project took place last week. The second phase of the project is taking place next week, a week from today. Um, and so we're trying our best to kind of uh, communicate to you why we're doing it and our initial results. But, you know, we cannot be held accountable if the things change, right, as of next week. Um, but this project was funded by the initiative that um, Effie spoke about, the American Women's History Initiative, um, and really seeks to, in addition to, you know, generally thinking about um, our online collections and incorporating women's history, uh, specifically looks to incorporate undergraduate voices into the description of women's history objects in our online collections catalog. Um, and so it's a partnership between American History, the Center for Learning and Digital Access, and of course, the American Women's History Initiative. Yes. Cool. So I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of I think some of the seeds that brought Cherry and I together to kind of think about this methodology and try to come up with a, a different way of thinking about collection records. So um, as I said, I work for um, this, the Smithsonian is very fortunate, I think, to have a place dedicated specifically to thinking about um, teachers and learners out of the context of the museum, really about what happens in the classrooms uh, with the content that we digitize or have digitally available. So um, the place I work for has been around for actually more than 40 years and really with the mission to serve public education. Um, and to, to do that, um, much of what we do is research and evaluation into, into how um, uh, teachers, educators, and learners really interact with the type of digital content um, that, that we have uh, available. Um, most recently, that research really led to the development of a new platform um, I've talked about here before, hopefully maybe you've heard of, called the Smithsonian Learning Lab, um, which is a, a digital toolkit that really encourages um, the discovery of about, about four million digital resources right now. Um, it has a series of tools that um, uh, encourage the creation of interactive uh, learning experiences based on those resources and really serves as a platform for publishing and sharing uh, these new approaches. And so we launched in 2016. We've had about a million, um, a million people use the platform. Those are museum and classroom educators. And um, uh, kind of to our, to our delight, we have uh, most of the Smithsonian Museums, Research Centers, Libraries, and Archives are now also using this platform to do the development of their educational content. Um, but those users across the globe and at our institutions have produced um, uh, tens of thousands of new examples of um, uh, museum digital resources centered educational resources that really range from kind of experiments to really true, I think, models for, for digital learning. One of the really important things um, that we do and, and that enables us to achieve our mission is not just working with the educators across the museums, but really working um, with collection managers, with curators, to really improve the descriptions of those materials. And I'm going to sort of talk a little bit about some of the research that led to this, and, um, and then Sherry will follow with a little bit about um, some of the changes going on at the National Museum of American History that really sort of smashed us together into kind of trying to think about a new way of, of getting to this. Um, I think, you know, the project is really probably to say too, I think, as Sherry said too, this is really kind of probably a first step 
into um, us um, thinking about um, how we can have more equitable collections, more usable digital resources, and I think ultimately, as Effie pointed out, really it's sort of a more relevant Smithsonian. Um, uh, in 2018, last year, we published um, a study uh, in collaboration with um, University of California at Irvine um, called Curation of Digital Museum Content. Um, this looked broadly across the first couple years of uh, learning lab usage um, and looked at all different aspects from professional development to um, digital content creation. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that's, I think, really relevant uh, to this was lo really looked at how teachers use a platform like this for search. Um, the majority of um, users in this study, about 76% of them, did find what they were looking for across the millions of digital resources, although that was often only after repeated visits. And I think, you know, we heard someone say uh, this morning about one of, the, one of the reasons for that, you know, is, is sort of Google. You know, the, expect the user expectation of search has, has become more aligned with um, search engines that have had tens or hundreds of billions of dollars investment. And, you know, Learning Lab, like many of our collection um, display systems, are pretty basic um, databases that um, search uh, looks um, at, you know, at, at, a, at a fairly simplistic index of that material um, and returns results based on you know, a pretty um, a simple measure of relevance. Um, and so there's a disconnect, I think, between user expectation and, and what it has. And it really is, is magnified, I think, when you start to look at um, the, the material that is being, that is being indexed. Um, looking a little bit more deeply in the study at how um, uh, how teachers discovered and used the concept. We found, we sort of divided up um, the barriers to success in terms of their use of these materials, looking both at intrinsic and extrinsic challenges. So the intrinsic things are things like, um, you know, lack of familiarity with visual literacy, um, uh, the lack of um, some research strategies in using academic databases by K-12 teachers. Um, but I think more interestingly or more um, important, at least for this study, is looking at some of the extrinsic challenges that um, that focused a lot on in, um, inadequate metadata for their purposes. I mean, there's other things in teachers' life like limited time and the need for tools and training. Um, but you know, specifically looking at those in extrinsic pieces, um, you know, insufficient content about museum resources. Both, I think, the descriptive information that describes object, but also that more interpretive layer of information really presents uh, another problem. We found, you know, teachers use um, resources or choose resources to use that have richer metadata associated with them. You know, and with that richer metadata, they can really progress from simply using um, and sort of finding and assembling um, these materials in a presentation or illustration mode um, to really a lot deeper um, uh, um, opportunities, um, such as making observations and analyzing sources and drawing conclusions. And I think as we begin to see teachers progress through using the kind of material they use on Learning Lab to their students using that material, we see a similar trajectory there where students are conducting independent research projects and they're using uh, resources that have much richer metadata associated with them. And so uh, I'm at one of the units that is providing this not very sufficient metadata <laughs> to these platforms, um, right? So at the uh, National Museum of American History, if you've not been, it is located on the mall. It is this very large uh, kind of like you know, um, mid-century modern interpretation of a neoclassical building. Um, and we have about four million visitors a year, and we have an incredibly large, vast amount of collections, okay? So that big building and additional off-site facilities has an estimated 1.8 million objects, 22,000 linear square feet of archival material, um, and it's kept in 31,000 square meters of storage space. Um, and so that encompasses a number of the objects you've see, you see here, some of which you might be familiar with, 
um, the one in the bottom left, right, by the way, is the, um, that's the first computer bug. There was like literally a bug in the computer, and so that's why we call it a bug. Um, yeah, isn't that cute? Uh, but I, I think what it is really important to note is that we have fewer than 0.2% of these collections on the floor at any given time. That's not 2%, that is 0.2%. Two percent. So basically, that puts such, I, I would say, given that I am in the digital world, that puts an onus on us digitally to see what we can do to expand access to our collections because we are really, I mean, talk about the tip of the iceberg. That is like the little tiny point at the top, right? So we really have to think creatively and most importantly at scale about how to reach people with our collections, which I think arguably is at odds with what Darren is describing as a need to describe them much more deeply, right? So we have this kind of tension between doing it all but doing it better, right? Um, couple that with the fact that we are in the midst of a big sea change at my institution in terms of what collections we share online. So what these graphs show is the current picture as of today, right now. Um, we share about 40% of our stuff, 40% um, of our records uh, that we have available in our, uh, in our internal database is what we are actually pushing to the web. Um, and then we only share approximately 60% of the uh, images attached to those records. Um, it gets a little confusing where objects have multiple images and stuff like that, but effectively, we have more digitized than we're actually sharing, and we have more records than we're actually sharing. Um, in a couple of weeks, um, actually cross your fingers, in two weeks, we're actually going to be flipping the switch on our entire uh, object collection database and bringing that uh, light blue line all the way up to the top and sharing the entirety of our collection, uh, minimal metadata and all. Um, and, you know, it, it's a range of metadata in terms of both quantity and quality, and one of the big questions is how do we make such a large volume of records actually usable and relevant to people um, that especially the audiences we want to reach in a very active way such as the you know what we would broadly call non-specialist users right people who um, do not have an incredible amount of background in American history objects non-curators non-professional historians such as uh, teachers and students and um, the undergraduate students that we wanted to look at for our project so so um, let's let's get uh, let's get a deeper look at some of um, what I'm talking about here. We're going to really get into it. So. Um, Along with all those objects, we have a number of women's history objects, as you might imagine, because we are a National History Museum. Um, but it's not always obvious at first glance that these are, in fact, women's history objects. Um, uh, or ever. You could look at this record for a long time and perhaps never reach that conclusion. Uh, because this is an example of an object from our medicine and science collection. Um, we will be sharing it online soon with this big push. And here are some of the things that you get out of it. Um, the object title is nor plant system, levonorgestrel implants, comma, resource center. Mm, very provocative. Um, some intriguing measurements, get a little deeper here, of a syringe and an artificial forearm. Yes. Um, that seems to be what's depicted at right, but you know, yeah, your guess is as good as mine. Um, the object name here is probably the closest we get to even hinting at the fact that it might be about women's history because you'll see that it says educational materials, comma, contraceptive, right? Mm, maybe. Um, so, you know, I am a proponent of minimal metadata records. This is my job. This is what I would like to see in the world is us being more transparent with our data. Um, so I would never say this is a bad record, right? Like this gives you some information. It certainly lets me know that 
his thing is called Norplant System, right? I mean, I can retrieve it if it's a known object search, but even I will admit this is not a particularly effective record when it comes to um, actually having real people interpret and find objects on something like women's history. Um, complicate that with the fact that, you know, we have a lot of discussion about the words we use to describe our collections. So I would love, love, love at my museum to move towards more controlled vocabularies to facilitate actually finding these objects, and especially, you know, in this case, women's history objects. But then the question is, what do we standardize to? So, you know, this is the Chanel nomenclature, which is arguably like the most general and best um, historical object thing. I see some faces. That's good. Tell me what is better. I will go there. Um, but the preferred object name for contraception is prophylactic, which, you know, I'm not convinced is the word your typical undergrad or non-specialist would use when conducting women's history research. Um, and then dig a little deeper here, the only specific object types they list under that category are condom, diaphragm, and sponge. So the, this is obviously a very limited set of contraceptive objects or approaches, right? And so we're not even representing like the full spectrum of what in you know 2019 actually contraceptive, contraceptive devices look like, right? So there are a lot of issues here. Yeah, so I think, you know, looking at those issues and thinking about some of the, the research that, that, um, that came out looking, you know, really at, at the difficulties and, and the, the uh, barriers to, to usage, um, really sort of, I think, became the seeds of this project and really wanted to figure out specifically how can we best describe women's histories objects um, within the collection of the National Museum of American History, you know, in a way that incorporates um, uh, contemporary women's his history scholarship, the changing understanding and language surrounding gender, um, and really, I think most of all, the, percep the perceptives, uh, excuse me, the perspectives of audiences that the Smithsonian is really interested um, in reaching, you know, teachers and, and learners, and, and specifically for this research, as Sherry mentioned, undergraduate students. Um, so we're gonna walk a little bit through the methodology, and as Sherry mentioned, we're sort of right in the middle of this, and so we're gonna share a little bit of what we've learned and kind of where we're headed, and I think what we hope to, we really hope to, to find out. Um, we were really inspired by um, some work that SFMOMA did um, a couple of years ago, within the um, art historical context of trying to add additional tags to, um, to their uh, work. And so they convened a series of workshops um, that used uh, worksheets like this, really kind of uh, uh, lo-fi um, approach, and, and suggested some keywords and asked uh, different types of audiences to suggest additional um, uh, keywords. And so I think what's really interesting here is um, you can see on the right some of the commonly suggested tags or things that often aren't included in museums controlled vocabularies, things like identity or pride or self. So we did a really early sort of pilot with a fellow um, this summer to, again, kind of look at um, um, a question about whether we could extend SFMOMA's methodology from um, um, looking at um, interpretive ways of thinking about art objects to uh, a collection of historical objects and to see if that would kind of work. And we, it sort of resulted in this kind of thing, which was really great, a kind of workshopping of a collection record um, to think about um, how non-specialists could really begin to think about describing objects in ways that um, fall out of the maybe the traditional ways that museums think about describing these objects. Um, um, and so, 
Um, the, the sort of stepwise methodolo methodology here was to um, identify students, and so we were really interested in using undergraduates, I think partially because it's, it's a really important audience focus for the American Women's History Initiative. Um, the, uh, uh, a whole group of us working with Effie uh, workshopped um, who we thought could be um, really um, high-value recipients of some of the work we were doing, and college students really sort of rose to the top. And so, and, and I think for our project, it really made sense to think about undergraduates as sort of a stand-in for um, people still using these materials in a learning context, but, but one's not necessarily with, it, with the background or the, the, um, the education or the experience to really um, understand how to use our databases in the way they are now. So we're working with American University in Washington um, with uh, undergraduates in women's studies and uh, history courses. Um, next was select objects. Um, Sherry's going to show you the final objects that, that we selected, but um, working through a, a diversity of objects to, uh, to workshop with students. Um, next was to develop uh, those worksheets, and so building again off of SFMOMA's model to think about um, how we can um, use these um, objects in their existing records to talk both to staff and to these students. And so the first part was really to work with um, staff at the National Museum of American History. So we, we talked to kind of people in sort of Sherry's world, sort of collection folks, but also curators and social media um, uh, communicators um, and an exhibit educator to also have them reflect on, I think this is really kind of interesting for me. I mean, the center that I work for is not embedded within one of the museums at the Smithsonian, so we're not a collecting unit. Um, so I, it was really sort of fascinating for me to, to, I think, to have Sherry say, you know, most people I work with, too, don't think these are great records. Like, this isn't sort of the best work. We understand the deficiencies and that we need to sort of look at these from different uh, perspectives and to, to provide these additional contexts. And so what we did is we used those interviews and what we could learn from these varieties of internal perspectives um, to um, enhance the records. And so we took the existing records from our sort of test uh, bank and came up with some new ways of describing them or some additions to them that m we're guessing maybe will help um, get us to where we need to go. So that's what we are finishing right now, almost there. Um, next week, we're going to be with the students. So we're going to do a series of workshops where the students first will see just the image associated with the test objects, and we'll have a conversation and some interviews around that. They'll then see the existing record. Um, and again, do the same conversation um, and interviews. And then they'll see these enhanced records and sort of see how close we were to the best guess at how, um, uh, how these records could be enhanced to be uh, perhaps more useful. Um, and then really ultimately the idea is to bring that learning back um, to help us inform a potential new methodology, I think, to think about um, how um, we change the way that we think about these records um, with, a, with a, uh, a, different, a different type of user in mind. Right? Um, yeah. So, oh, yeah, I don't need that. I have my, I have my own. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so these are the objects that we ultimately decided to test with both, as Darren mentioned, the staff and then the students. Um, so clockwise from the top left, um, that's a what's called a gymnasium suit. It's uh, I, I'll like spoiler alert for you. The, these are the object titles, but I mean, even for me, they're not all that. Um, I, representative, I, I don't always know what they mean. So a gymnasium suit was like a, uh, it was also called a bloomer suit and it was the way women exercised at that time in the gym was in full wool. So yeah. Um, the second uh, image is a douche powder and that's so a, a powder that you would mix with water and it was uh, marketed as a contraceptive device, interestingly enough. 
Yep. Um, right? Yeah. Oops. <laughs> that, that's, that's, I'm sure a lot of people said that. Um, uh, at the top right is, uh, you know, a, a political garment. It's a rock for, Rock Against Reagan was the name of a punk concert, and this was a t-shirt that um, a Latina punk rocker wore, and then um, you can't see it here, but she actually changed the date. It says uh, 1984, and then she X that out, and she said 1985, because, like, the fight continued, right? Um, the, the bottom left object is a Chatelaine pencil. A Chatelaine is a almost like a Swiss army knife of the late 19th century that women would wear um, with all different kinds of tools at their hip. Um, and like almost like a, you know, the way you think of like a charm bracelet or something, but all with like very practical tools at your hip. Uh, that was a pencil. And then the last one is our favorite, the Norplant Educational Resource Center, which, you know, I just love. Um, and we will get back to that. Don't worry. I, I will tell you more about it. Um, these are the staff findings, like hot off the presses, seriously, like synthesized on the plane um, over here. Um, I think they, they clustered roughly into three areas. Um, you know, uh, first of all, the staff felt that the object records needed more information. I, I guess I, I would say about the objects in history, so their past lives, right? What they are, how they were used, by whom was a big question of the staff. It's like saying, we want to provide donor information, donor information. I said, all right. Um, so we tried to incorporate a little of that. Um, the objects now and their importance to history and the museum. So a lot more about like why we collected it. What's it doing there? What, what's it even matter? Um, and then finally, um, and interestingly to me, connections to other objects. Because that's where we start to get into controlled vocabularies and really thinking about how we hook stuff up, right? Um, and here's an example of how we are very much right now in the process of enhancing the record, um, going back to this Norplant uh, system object. Um, this is so in response to staff feedback um, to test with students in that final object enhancement round um, after those students had been provided feedback on the more minimal records, right? Um, and we didn't remove any data, but what we're doing rather is layering it on. And I wasn't able to fit the whole thing here, so don't worry, the measurements of the syringe and the artificial arm are still there. Um, but I wanted to show where we added a lot. Um, so the black and the pink here are all things that are already exist in our system. So they're either going online um, when we put them on there or they are very ready sources of descriptions we, we have and that we could. Uh, the purple copy is what um, our professor historian um, uh, partner drafted and, as, um, as part of kind of her background as a women's studies historian with uh, words specific to women's studies and that field and the discipline. And the green are controlled vocabularies mostly out of the Library of Congress subject headings. Um, so we have a range of things there. Um, and I'll just, I, I, oh, I can't actually read it for you. Can you read that? This object is so interesting. I didn't know much about the Norplant contraception system, but it's basically like um, uh, a contraception that is implanted, small rods that are implanted under the arm. And there was um, like a lot of controversy surrounding this because it caused terrible side effects and it was uh, often used um, by lawmakers to suggest that certain women in this country, namely marginalized, lower income and African American women should actually, you know, it was pushed basically on them. So this object that was just this like very kind of 
um, you know, almost like medical, straight-laced, all medical nomenclature thing now has this whole other life, right, with all of this robust context. So that is going into the record. And additionally, we're pushing it a little bit here with some of the subject headings and including some that um, I, I would be really interested to see what the students will um, say, things like population control in addition to birth control um, and really pushing the ideas of, you know, where does a museum um, have a responsibility to, you know, kind of editorialize and where, you know, what, where, where is that line? And so seeing what the undergrads who are involved in these, like at this formative time of thinking through these questions, um, it'll be really interesting what they say about those ideas. And so I'm hoping we get a little bit of that back from them. So cross your fingers and stay tuned. Um, and then what, what we wanted to end on, though, was the idea that, um, you know, just zooming out again here, I love this generous interface from the New York Public Library, right? Um, you know, it's regardless of what the findings are for this project, you know, I think our hope for this is that it represents an actual methodology for engaging real people in a physical space with online records, right? And I think that I, you know, as, as a digital collections practitioner, I, I'm guilty, too, of espousing this belief that, you know, if we put it online, they will come. You know, we're going to put all of our records online, and then the American people will tell us what we should deaccession. And, you know, like, no. It's, it's because the, the hard work of it comes after, right? And I think everyone in this room knows that, you know, we have to devise active programs of engagement um, and bring people in in a real way to, you know, solicit their feedback and input when we're involved in these projects. So again, yeah, stay tuned. Thank you. Are you going to stand? Is it okay if I stand? I'm yes. on that metabolic seesaw of caffeine and alcohol, so <laughs> common to conference going, and my blood was starting to settle, so I think it'd be a little better if I'm up on my feet. Um, so thank you. My name is Bob Horton. I'm the uh, Assistant Director for Collections and Archives at the National Museum of American History. And let's see if this works. Oops, there we go. And this just reassures us that we're all in the right place. Um, so I've long thought access uh, should drive our digital and digitization initiatives. Access was good, more access was better, et cetera. Partly because I, I started uh, in the career as a state archivist, and with that background, I was very interested in transparency, accountability, uh, rights to, to make government open uh, to citizens. But there's also a question of demand, I think, uh, that uh, needs to be factored into the equation. Whenever I give a tour of the archives or any of the storage areas at the museum, the question I always get is, well, when will all this be online? And I always say, never. It'll never all be online. <laughs> But that's the expectation, that it should all be online. And I think this is, um, in expectation is reinforced by the fact that there's so much funding available historically and, and even now for um, uh, uh, digitization and the uh, uh, access to digital content. Enormous amounts of time, energy, and resources are devoted to increasing the amount of content available online. So getting that content online has always been complicated by intellectual property rights, and there have long been debates about fair use, et cetera. And certainly now the process is more and more complicated by the growing concerns about privacy, where we're much more aware of, um, of sensitive issues and personally identifiable information than we have perhaps been in the past. And I think this is even more so now as we start to work with diverse and different communities 
And as we look forward to uh, the vista of open access, which is, if you can um, promise us, is going to come in February for the Smithsonian. So um, there are two strands to uh, what follows. One, I'm going to talk a little bit about our planned um, and proposed digital hub for LGBT uh, collections. And I'm also going to uh, try to work in some information from a recent article by um, Sonia Catchall, um, Techno Heritage. She's a law professor at UC Berkeley. And I think these will help us explore the larger framework of cultural heritage institutions dealing with technology, and especially with collections going online. So what does it all mean for us? So this is a brief description of, of what we propose for the digital hub. Uh, it's a project, is a partnership of the Smithsonian's Museum of American History with the One Foundation, uh, which is uh, based in Los Angeles and uh, helps support the One Archives at, uh, now at USC. And uh, we have uh, undergone uh, negotiations, uh, <laughs> almost interminable negotiations with Stanford libraries about developing the platform. So but they promised to be our digital uh, partner in this. Um, the project started with a meeting to which we invited, you know, all the usual suspects you can think of. Uh, and um, we've then since gone through a variety of iterations of exploring options and ideas through um, uh, additional meetings and, and discussions and conversations. In those, we've always heard a clear mes message. Nobody wanted a messiah, right? I mean, the, the idea was uh, the Smithsonian wasn't perceived as coming to anybody's rescue with these ideas. That's a variation of we're from the federal government and we're here to help, I suppose. But everyone we talked to uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in this process had all the ordinary concerns you'd hear about this um, type of process. Distrust of a big traditional institution that historically had not been documenting uh, LGBTQ, communi LGBTQ communities, um, questions about control, questions about authority, questions about process, just sort of definition of what the benefits were. And um, I think to a certain extent cultural heritage institutions that had been working with indigenous peoples um, had already encountered a lot of these things. And I'll just point out uh, two really wonderful projects, um, uh, Mukutu, uh, a collections management system, uh, and the traditional knowledge labels that uh, I think uh, really are, are wonderful models for us to consider. Um, so those, uh, those help to, uh, to help us define some of the, as I said, some of the ordinary concerns. We also encountered, I think, some extraordinary concerns. Um, and one, uh, quite clearly, was it wasn't a community we were looking at, it was communities, which we heard over and over and over again. Not a single and representative group, but many and multiple communities. Uh, defined by race, by class, by gender, sexual or, uh, orientation, geography, you, could, you, you name it. And that was kind of a daunting development for us because each one of those communities represented a certain amount of investment in time, resources, conversations, meetings, negotiations, etc. And there's a limit to how much we could do. My immediate sort of response in, in a self-protective way was kind of a reference to uh, Freud's narcissism, a minor difference. Like, how important was this? And um, I spent long years in Minnesota where the descendants of Swedes um, always scorned the descendants of Norwegians. Minneapolis made fun of St. Paul. They're right next to each other. Um, everyone looked down on Wisconsin. I'm sorry, Matt. I probably should have said North Dakota. Anybody here from North Dakota? Okay. Um, so everyone looked down on North Dakota. Um, and this was tempting, I think, but it was really the misses of the fact that these, these concerns, these distinctions, and these differences were very real and very heartfelt. 
So we somehow had to, had to address them and somehow how to um, uh, account for them in, in what we were kind of trying to develop. They really came to the fore, though, when we con when it was connected to uh, digitization. The idea of aggregating metadata in the digital hub was far less controversial than, um, than the prospect, which really engendered a lot of serious opposition, of real content, digital content becoming part of the hub. And so, and that was probably perhaps prophetic if we get to the second strand of the conversation I wanted to bring forward, um, which is uh, uh, Sonia Cashel's article, Techno Heritage. Um, she starts with the assumption that things that were once tangible cultural properties have essentially become intangible intellectual properties. And she's referencing two developments, one increased digitization, vastly increased availability of collections as images and data, and two, the, the directions museums are taking in managing that digital content, the response to that. And as a consequence of these, she argues that the framework for defining access could well become less about intellectual property rights and more about contracts. And how might this look from the perspective of historically rep repressed and underrepresented communities? So I ask you this, if we think intellectual property rights have been defined and encoded by the dominant hegemonic culture, then just think about contracts. What could that offer? Um, it's ex much more um, and, and, and extraordinarily biased than the former. So uh, Catchell's larger concern about the consequences of the digital for the museum really kind of boil down um, so I think this is fairly familiar, not controversial, that um, we have to be aware um, that the technology um, is biased is, is, is just as much as the law codes. Um, curation um, can be performed by algorithms, I'll let you all read it. But for her, um, this is not a good thing. Legally, it puts us in a bad position, but more important, as collections become increasingly a function of technology, then they are even more effectively dominated by or defined by the biases and presumptions built into the applications rather than enhanced by them. So I think we need to go back to the concerns raised by my colleagues and partners in the LGBTQ digital hub projects. They're really on to something. Our assumptions about professional identities as cultural heritage professionals, our standards, our best practices, our ideas of sustainable functions and services all color our understanding about the application of technology to our routines. And it's combined with the inertia of how our institutions are structured and how our resources are allocated, this makes for both practical and epistemic barriers to meaningful and ongoing change. So I'd suggest we do much more to encourage dialogue with communities and consequently change what we do and how we think before we build our apps, design our platforms, etc. And the range of possibilities to consider could include post-custodial approaches to collections, which would be an extraordinary change for the Smithsonian. 1.8 million objects? Do we, do we want all those? Do we need more? Uh, we don't get, uh, Sherry, who has to describe them, would say no. Um, but also sharing authority, development of new curatorial skills and areas of expertise. Do we do things or do we share things? Do we facilitate things or, um, uh, and help people or do we do it all ourselves? Does it all happen to happen does all have to happen within the four walls of a building on the mall, nice as it may look. Um, 
and understanding, I think, uh, that larger context of, of interest. So what we can posit so far in our work is that while certain conceptual themes broadly apply to such engagements, we'll have a lot of, a lot of different variables to consider in just the equation of building these things out. There's a diversity of communities. They're not all the same. There's a diversity of our institutions. We're not all the same. There's a dynamic nature of technology. It's never the same. It's changing and it's changing outside of our control. And then there's last and always something we, we talk about, which is almost the, the lingua franca of all projects, is the availability of resources or the, or the lack thereof. So all that will mean as we move from theory to practice, from great idea to everyday anxiety, there will always be a wide variety of opportunities for us at the level of implementation. I think it's going to be hard work and plenty of it. But we do have to, I think, start to change, start to think about changing what we do um, and changing um, what we are in, in order to address some of the challenges and opportunities ahead of us. Thank you. Any questions? We didn't, unfortunately, leave that much time. But um, I think we have. Seven minutes, exactly. We have a 15-minute buffer in this room, too. Oh, good. So we can stay. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Um, thank you so much. All of this work is fantastic and really interesting, and it's so important, and I'm really glad that you are all engaged in it, and you're continuing to open it up to be more inclusive and broader and in all directions. Um, I have a really specific question about the metadata that you, or the description data that you displayed in terms of their layering, Sherry. Mm -hmm. um, how will you be presenting that on to Yeah, so right now, uh, that's such a great question because one of the things I've wrestled with the entire time on this project is how closely to try to represent our current realities of our database and how we do things. It, actually, our database is pretty flexible. It's just that I have, you know, hundreds of people using it and, and so there are like these ways that we use it. And so um, I, I haven't quite I, I decided to say, let's go for the ideal, you know, so let's just test with this. Let's see what the students say and let's see what they come back with. And if we are really looking at a universe where we need to layer descriptive labels or something, which I, I think we are, then we'll try to figure out how our, our database and our then systems that take from our database and the APIs actually do that. Um, I was really inspired by one of the earlier talks today about um, kind of the limitations of collections management systems. I don't know if you were at that, but it it's becomes this interesting kind of circular thing where it's like, is the problem your CIS or your CMS, or is the problem your data model, or is the problem that you just haven't even imagined what, you, what your requirements are, you know? And so, um, so the short story is, no, I haven't really figured out. I, I do know that RCIS does make it possible to have multiple descriptions for a given object. So I'm hopeful that we could leverage that kind of limited functionality, but then it would be up to us to actually define the rules for how we do that. So we don't just have what we have now, which is like, whatever you want in those descriptive buckets, but more of, kind of like guidance to say, okay, well, this is a um, material description and this is a, um, 
you know, the, the way we used it in this exhibit, and then this is, and by the way, the arguments about the metadata, even in this testing phase, are about that. Because some curators think, well, this is how we describe an object. And some say, well, I collected it for this, but now you're using it in a women's history context. That's different, right? And so I think that we are kind of headed towards this environment where we have no choice but to kind of show the, the many lives these objects lead. Um, and we're going to have to figure out how to like logistically do that. But my thinking was, let's, let's tackle the conceptual first, figure out the requirements, and then reverse engineer it to how we actually make that work, you know? Does that answer your question? Um, yeah, so uh, we're working on it. I mean, one of the things I love about American History's collection is that it includes that kind of more, you know, what we call less notable history of, of these different roles. Um, but we are uh, something to keep an eye on. Um, we're going to be bringing in people who theorize about, uh, you know, representation and data who work out processes for tagging things and they're going to we're going to basically be defining how to do this with the project. I think that um, reflecting on what Bob just said, I think that's one of the things we can do as a national museum and why not make the women's initiative being developing things that can help us do this better. And so, yeah, I mean, we're we're not there yet. Everyone needs a little caffeine, I can see it in the room. <laughs> I do want to shout out to Carrie Cacho, who's in the audience, too. She's a co-lead on the um, education team for the Women's Initiative. She's also developing, so our three target audience for, audiences for the Women's Initiative, and I, I was pretty strict about just declaring three. Um, middle school students, women and girls of color, both in terms of representation and how we serve them, and college students. Um, one of the things that, Carrie was funded to build is a, um, a middle school curriculum to invite that demographic in to transcribe documents related to girl history for an upcoming exhibit at the American Women's History Initiative. So I love this idea of bringing uh, this history to the girls now and having them reflect on it. So um, that could be a good guideline for you guys to use. Um, if you do crowdsourcing to, to bring it down to a, a new level of audience. Ross. Can I ask a really stupid question for, for coffee? Maybe this is just something I have an open mind about. And the second qualifier is apologies if this has already come up in a discussion at night or about decolonization already. But when you have those, those amazing days where you come together and it's, it's actually exciting How radical do you get? What, what, where do you allow yourself to go? Because actually there are incremental battles on it. You, know, you, you could go there, but actually you need strategically and sensibly and pragmatically, expediently let, let's get there, because that would be a big revolution. 
revolutionary women you know, within the institution. But <laughs> in those you know, moments at the very beginning and very end of the day where you are being at your most kind of creative and expansive, where, where do you allow yourselves to go? Because I'm thinking of the work of like, the amazing Hannah Turner at UBC and people like Laura Gibson at King's College London who, who've been working in South Africa with Zulu tribes and looking at the legacy of the data model in museums in South Africa. And the problem there is not just the algorithm that's got loaded and dripping with, with ideology, not just the term list, not even the data model itself, but just database, mm -hmm. computer, mm -hmm. carries a whole load of, load of baggage with it. So they're, they're challenging us to go back even further. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not suggesting that stop using the CMS, but you know, the changes you're describing are fantastic changes, but it, it's still working, isn't it, with, with, with that data model and with mm. that Where could you go? Where's that radical, object-orientated, completely different kind of way of conceptualizing Do you have that I think um, I'll, I'll just jump in because it, it, we're in the process of, of developing a new strategic plan with a, a new secretary and a new director at, at the Museum of American History. And I, I think you have to tie that to uh, basically uh, resource reallocation. Is we are, uh, what, 100, closing in 175 years old as an institution. Everything we do now has a constituency and a group of supporters and has embedded investment in terms of staff, training, and expertise. To choose something radically different means addressing that foundation. And we can work to a certain extent on the edges, um, and we can work towards, I think, in incremental steps in a specific direction, but the idea of a radical change at a place that considers itself incredibly successful at what it does now is probably not likely to happen unless uh, something really drastic or urgent comes along as well. Do you have that conversation? Well, we're having a conversation. We, uh, so with the Women's Initiative, we, we are. And, and actually, I, you know, we've had a history of cultural centers that start as that. And it's, it's very much like the model of a mini museum where there are curators, there's an education person, one digital person. So, um, we're talking about how we can do this differently in light of how most people access what we have. I wouldn't say that's fully formed yet, but I'm also thinking about the network model of museums across the US and then how can we take that worldwide? So like instead of just thinking inwards all the time, how do we increase that network out so we can dramatically address some of the challenges that we're seeing, I mean, I thought it was completely stunning that 70% of people mentioned in K-12 cur curriculum are women. That is 18% of Wikipedia bios are about women. So there's something fundamentally that we're doing that matches what is getting out there as well. And it's, I'm, I'm increasingly thinking about the scale challenge of doing, of, of the, the need to do this at scale and for it not just to be, get the 19 museums and nine research centers at the Smithsonian functioning better together. So, but it's, it's gonna take different, and I have more flexibility um, than bigger organizations right now. So we'll, we'll play that out for a little while. 
were you asking also about kind of like systems of uh, systems of oppression, right? Not just, I, I mean, is that what you're getting at? Because I'm not sure I fully understood, but like. I told you it's a terrible question. No, 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 no. no but I think I was, I think it, it riffed on what the original response. You know, mm -hmm. you are the Smithsonian Institution. Yeah. And uh, you are the establishment. You are that formality, and there would be a conservatism. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, yeah. behind the curtain, in those workshops, do you actually allow yourself to think, Okay, we'll get those collections online, we'll change those fields, but wouldn't it be great if yeah. we could just ditch the, the rows and columns and that, that term list and that thesaurus? And wouldn't it be great if Smithsonian led the way by saying, I see. you know what, there's an utterly different way of conceptualizing an online collection that's representative? I mean, I think we're having, I have those conversations. I can't speak for everyone. I, are they like, um, if, you know, broadcast in front of, you know, I, I, the, is it, if everyone tweets this, I don't know what that'll do. I'm a federal employee, you know, but like, uh, yeah, I think those conversations are happening and I think that they're happening with increasing frequency and with a lot of kind of self-reflection and you have a lot of folks that are really trying to reconcile that because, you know, we are a federal system, uh, we are, it, it, it's very, and it's, and it's difficult, I can only speak for being in American history, but you know, we have folks going out to collect on the 2020 election, uh, the, you know, it, it's very, um, the collecting, the documentation, all of it I think is coming into question and a lot of people are having some pretty, you know, edge conversations there, but w I think the challenge is figuring out how you actually do it, to, to Bob's point, yeah. Thank you everyone.